So I'm just warning you. I said I'm just warning you, but good morning to you as well. Good morning and good morning. Morning. I'm clicking and I'm clicking and I'm preaching. We shall see. Just no promises. <laughs> it is true that uh, this isn't the point. None of this is the point. Uh, but I know it's nice to have, and so I appreciate your grace today, especially those in the back who I know this is hard to see. Just for the record, if you can't see the song lyrics, Scripture doesn't say you have to sing the right words or stay on key or pitch. It just says make a joyful noise. So I say let's test that today. Your noise is beautiful, Thomas. Don't worry. <laughs> today we are continuing our Matthew uh, series, and we are beginning Matthew chapter 6 this morning. Matthew chapter 6. Uh, well, the whole Sermon on the Mount is just chock full of amazing things. Obviously, it's Jesus's, uh, basically, it's his sermon on kingdom living. And this section is no different. It's not quite as, as content intensive as last week by any means, but these still have a lot of pertinent things to today. But keep in mind also, as I like to remind you, we are looking at the bigger picture of Matthew, just in general as far as the whole book, as well as the Sermon on the Mount. So there will be some things we won't delve into as deeply as you would like, but hopefully, especially this section, does connect with what's next. So just try to keep, as we go, the bigger picture in your mind. Imagine, if you will, for a moment, if you were writing a book, you are writing a book and you get to determine the characters, you get to determine the setting, you get to determine what the manger drives, what they wear, what they eat. You get to determine the world in which this book takes place. As Ross actually used to say with the painting, this is your world, you're the creator, but you're writing a book. As you bring these characters to life and you develop their personality and you develop their ins and outs and you develop their backstory, just imagine, if you will, the incredulity if the characters in the book suddenly decided to say, hey, this isn't your book anymore, this is mine. I'm going to be doing the writing of my own story from now on. I'm going to be making myself the main character. Meanwhile, a character which had only two pages of dialogue or something says, no, I'm going to be the main character and this is what we're going to do this way. Meanwhile, you're looking at this book going, wow, this is a weird dream. But then two, you're going, what is going on? Now, obviously, that's a ridiculous example. That would never happen in real life, except that we have done it, meaning humans. The thing about God's world is that although he is creator and although he is the one who determines things and characters and settings and places and such, oftentimes throughout history, one of the biggest faults of humankind is that we tend to want to make ourselves the main characters. We want to try to make ourselves the ones who are controlling the book and the writing and the creation and the story and the ending. From Genesis 3, we've done this. When the serpent said to Eve, eat this fruit and you will be like God. And Eve said, I want to be like God. And then so did Adam and so did the rest of us. 
This section of Scripture, I begin this way because this section of Scripture is very much about making ourselves the center of a story which wasn't even written for us, yet written by God, for God, meaning written His world, His way, and yet we want to make ourselves the main characters of it. It was read earlier, but let's go through the text once again and we'll comment on a few things as hopefully as usual. Matthew 6, starting in verses 1 through 4, says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, or then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. This has created some interesting interpretations, but let's just break it down a little bit verse by verse. First of all, let's look at this word, righteousness. I've talked about this word before. Uh, it's based off, in the Greek, it's based off the Hebrew word, which ultimately means right relationship. If you are in right relationship with someone, it means that you are righteous with them in a sense. We have a word for a broken relationship or a crooked relationship. Someone is a crook if they break something, if the relationship between them and someone else is not right. Righteousness means right relationship. But in Hebrew, tzedakah also has an alternate meaning, and it's pretty much the word for almsgiving which is what Matthew uh, will talk about, well, what Jesus will talk about that Matthew records. Now, in this first verse, I want to make very clear that Jesus is setting out the theme of chapter 6, in a sense. This, at least the theme of the first uh, two-thirds of the chapter. And so I believe that this theme is talking about the right relationship with God. In a sense, if you want to put it another way, beware of practicing your standing, your relationship, your righteousness, your grace, your mercy with God before other people in order to be seen by them. Now, right away, what's, what's the paradox? What's the paradox of, that, of even that little statement? Beware of practicing your relationship with God to be seen by others. The paradox that we all too, fall often, all too often fall into the trap. What is Jesus talking about here initially? Well, let's continue on a little bit. Beware your righteousness before others. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, the obvious question is, does Jesus condemn doing anything, in this case giving, in a public setting? No. He praises and commands his apostles to do it at the temple. He praises the widow and her might. He praises those who give that he sees. And he practices this with his disciples. And so, he's not condemning the public display or the public doing of anything. And so it's deeper than that. In fact, it's exactly opposite, deeper than that. What Jesus is talking about here as he is talking about, and this may be hard for us to see on this PowerPoint, what he's talking about is deceit. But not the obvious necessarily deceit. What he's talking about here is deceit of three things. Deceit of intention. 
Now what does that mean? It means that you are deceiving with your intention of why you are giving. And first and foremost, you are deceiving, yes, as he says, ourselves as well as others. Now, the others is very obvious here. I'll explain the ourselves in just a minute. When we practice our righteousness, when you practice our relationship, when we do the things which are indicative of a relationship with God, and I'm not just talking about giving. First and foremost, I want you to hear, and I want you to hear, and I want you at home to hear, and I want everyone to hear, that you ought not to give to the church because the church says you should give to the church. I'm not looking at case I'm just making sure. No. You ought not to give to the church because the church says you ought to give to the church. You ought to give to God because God is a giver. You ought to give out of a recognition and a respect and a worship of what God has given to you. Do we all understand that? Any church would say you should give just because we're the church. You ought to give first and foremost as a sign, as a personal discipline, as a personal overflow of your relationship with God. Having said that, Sometimes, because of how it's framed and because of what we think, sometimes, even now, we get to where we start practicing that aspect of our relationship with God for the benefit of those around us. I know people, and maybe not here, but I know people who have made, it's in an envelope, but it's a very fat envelope, or they make a point of writing on the ledger or something. There are ways of trying to get your neighbor to notice, or maybe even your wife or your kids to notice, Anyone. What's the point here? The point is, Jesus is calling out those who make a show of their giving in any way, shape, or form. Some people think that was when the trumpet sounded at the temple. They would, that's when they would very, uh, very obviously put their money in. Some people think the trumpets and the sound are indicative of putting a whole lot of coins into the box to where you drop it and then you walk away. You're like, yeah, I just made that noise. Whatever the principle is, whatever you do that is in any way trying to deceive others, meaning that you're doing it for their adoration and not the worship of God. Now, offhand, here's the thing. That may seem very obvious. Like, who would do that? I don't do that. Who? Why would? Well, the thing is, Jesus is also talking about something else. He's talking about the fact that obviously your relationship with God, first and foremost, is with God. And especially in the New Testament, and but always in the Old Testament, all throughout, God does not want you to engage with Him through or by anyone or anything else. God is interested in a direct engagement with His creation and therefore expects a direct engagement of His creation back with Him. This picture in a word is worship. We, from God, our relationship with God, our knowledge of God, our faith in God, we directly engage our Creator and He engages with us through prayer, through these disciplines, through these things. This is what a healthy relationship in God looks like, with God looks like, individually and then also as a church. But the thing is, too, as I mentioned, the deceit doesn't just lie in the intentional deception of others. But also sometimes this deceit can come up in the deception of ourselves. 
I think this applies to when we pine for the adoration and respect of others, the approval of others, the encouragement of others, even unknowingly. Now you might say, well, that's a little fair if I don't even know how to do it. Ryan, is it an excuse to not know the law? Even our government gets that. Now the difference between God and our government is God is a God of grace and mercy. And he sent Jesus. Ryan will still give you a ticket. <laughs> Maybe. Part of our job, Jesus is teaching, is to become self-aware. Not only self-aware of what we do, but why we do it. Not only self-aware of our actions, but what those actions are for. This is a high thing that God asks of us, but yet he doesn't let us do it alone. He sends the Spirit, he sends the Word, he sends other Christians. But this is what Jesus is talking about, the deception of others, including and maybe because of the deception of ourselves. The question is, why do you do what you do in this building? Why do you do what you do in front of others? Why do you do what you do? Period. It's a question that maybe we're not taught to ask, but we ought to. Because if there is anything else in front of this, the approval of God is not what we seek. And Jesus speaks very plainly about the consequences of that. Likewise, we should also be aware that sometimes the practice of righteousness of others may not sit well with us, may not be according to our approval, may not be according to what we think is right, but we have to realize, too, that that is not always our place. People look down upon David for dancing in front of the Lord, yet God says, Well done, my good and faithful servant. I'm not advocating dancing in the church. I'm not not advocating dancing in the church. I'm just quoting a Bible story, understand. Others' acts of righteousness be careful should we condemn them just because we don't approve or think that they ought to seek our approval. Jesus continues. Well, this is a question actually I wanted to stop on. What other sacrifices do we tend to make? And I actually want you to think on this for maybe 20 or 30 seconds. Even talk with people around you if you want. What other sacrifices do we make with the wrong intentions in which we sacrifice true righteousness? I'm not just talking about giving. Let me throw some ideas out there. Do we seek authority? Do we seek position? Do we seek finances? Do we seek... What do we seek? What other sacrifices do we make with the wrong intentions in which we may actually end up sacrificing our true relationship with God? Just think on that for 20 seconds. And feel free to say we as a church, but also we as a you.
across a tweet this week, which I attempted to put in here. I decided not to, but obviously I should have. It said, may we not find ourselves defending and sitting at the very tables that you, Jesus, would have overturned. Jesus continues, however. He continues on and says, When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as Gentiles do, for they think they'll be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Now there are several things here. Once again, is Jesus condemning public prayer? No. He prays in front of his disciples. In fact, he will just now teach, and in just a minute, his disciples something to recite and to say and to base their prayers on. He's not condemning public prayer. But what is he condemning? He's condemning the very same thing as he did with giving. The trick, the key is that they may be seen by others. I'm not accusing necessarily anyone of this here. But I know people who have, they talk normal as you and I, and then when they pray, they all of a sudden launch into the King James-iest language ever. And I know several people who do that, and I have no doubt about one or two of the people and few people I question their motives. Is that fair? I just do. I'm maybe even confessing. The point is, I can't judge them specifically, but I can look at myself. You know, for preachers, it's a real temptation, especially this pandemic, to base our success and base our how good we are or not off the crowd, right, Pat? Off of our congregation, off of how the feedback we get, off of how many people are here or not. This applies. I pray that doesn't happen, but I need people to keep me honest as well. Since they stand in the synagogues and pray. Now, we're talking about several things here. We're talking about the same kind of deceit that he talked about with giving, both that of ourselves and each other. Why? Because, uh, whoops, what am I doing? Go back. That's right, I got confused. First time I got confused with the clickers. There we go. Why the deceit? Because, once again, prayer is a direct relationship between you and God. You don't need to go through anyone else, and you do not need to seek the approval of whatever you pray for with anyone else. Now, when it comes to prayer, we're actually talking about three different kinds of prayer. We are talking about impromptu prayer. Well, <laughs> I'm all over the place. Prayer, I saw this definition. I should have, I think this is McKnight again. Prayer is a response to God's word in our lives, meaning, as he explains, there will be different prayers, different kinds of prayers for different appropriate, different circumstances in our lives. And so we're talking about three different types of prayers. One is impromptu prayer, obviously things which you respond to, oftentimes they're what we tend to do uh, in our services, about you pray about whatever is on your heart, wherever you prepare. There is recited prayers. Recited prayers have a rich history and tradition of the church, maybe not so much in our direct tradition, but there's a rich history. But also, in history, we're talking about the Jewish daily prayers. They would pray three times a day, more or less morning, afternoon, and evening, begin with the Shema, and there were several other prayers they would recite every day. What is most likely here is that Jesus is talking about this aspect of prayer. Whenever at a certain time, at a certain day, you would pray. Except that you wouldn't just 
be wherever you were and say, oh, it's time to pray and then do it. You would make sure you were in the busy marketplace. Or you would make sure you were near the synagogue. Or you would make sure you were near the restaurant. You would make sure you were somewhere where there would be people who would hear you in your righteous devotion to God. Pray loudly and fervently. And Jesus says hypocritically, the same question applies, and it's something which we need to ask ourselves beyond just the obvious answers. Why do you serve on Sunday morning? Why do you serve in your ministries? Why are you a minister? Why are you an elder? Why are you a deacon? Why are you anything, and if it's anything other than out of your worship and devotion and service to God, even just a little bit, you fall in this category. We fall in this category. It's a serious question. Because if there's any way that the approval turns away from God, we're in this category of seeking the approval and the award from someone else. Now, he mentions something else, that he do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. See, for pagans, the thought process was this, that you would pray very long, very incessant, and very babbling prayers. If you can't read that, that says pray, 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 pray. There's two lines of thought with this. One, that eventually you would wear whatever pagan god you were praying to, you would wear them down. And they would eventually acquiesce to, fine, stop it. Have a good harvest. <laughs> or, out of your many words, and there are actually pagan prayers you can read that go on and on and on and on because they want to convince their pagan gods of their sincerity. And the way that you did that was to go on and on and on and not just say in passing, oh God, help with this, amen, but you had to mean it in order that you would pray about it for, for a long time and repeating it and saying different ways and, and that was the only way the pagan gods would, one, understand you, but then two, make sure that, oh, this person is devout. Lois really means this. If she's been praying to me for 10, 12, 14, 16, half an hour, holy cow, I better give her this. This was the thought process. And Jesus answers that in two ways. One, he says, do not heap up empty phrases that the Gentiles do for they think that they will be heard by their many words. Jesus isn't condemning long prayers. Maybe unfortunately, no. He's not condemning long prayers, but he is condemning the intent of wearing down your God or convincing your God. And he refutes this by saying, Do not be like them, for your Father already knows what you need before you ask Him. There's no need to convince Him of your sincerity. There's no need to convince Him of that you really need this and wear Him down. God knows because He's engaged with you as you are engaged with Him. Scott Knight puts it this way. He says, Prayer is not informing God of something unknown, but drawing oneself in the divine life of the Trinity and into the very mission of God in this world. This God loves us and invites us into His presence with our petitions. It's very much like that of a marriage or a relationship if you've never been married. It's not that you absolutely need to tell you know, you, if you've been through something together and you talk about it, it's not that you need to remind each other, well, sometimes of what just went on or anything, but you need to talk about it and come into each other's presence and come together to approach a problem. The same is with God. 
except God already knows and leads us. And so we come to the Lord's Prayer, which we'll go through rather quickly, but hopefully efficiently. This prayer is something which has been recited arguably more than any other scripture throughout history, both individually and as a church. And there's nothing that I could tell you that's new about the Lord's Prayer. In fact, if I tell you something new, I would run from me. There's nothing new. But I'll tell you anyway, because it's worth repeating, and it's worth knowing, and worth learning. The Lord's Prayer is often divided into two sections, you petitions and we petitions. And these we and you positions, there's more on this. If only I had the five hours I talked about this morning in, in the African congregations. If only, if only, if only. There's more on this, but what Jesus is doing is bringing in the greatest commandment into this prayer by saying that the you petitions are about loving God and the we petitions are about loving others. And what are the things he talks about? Well, we're very familiar with them. He says, love God by what? Sanctify your name. Your kingdom come and your will be done. What about loving others? We'll go through this again in just a minute. But what about loving others? He says that their needs be met, that they have and you have reciprocal forgiveness and for their deliverance from evil. This is the Lord's Prayer in a nutshell. You petitions and we petitions. Love God and love others. All within six ideas, six verses. Let's delve into it just for a moment, shall we? Jesus begins, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. The idea of God as a Father is not necessarily new, but it's very characteristic of Jesus in the fact that Jesus approached God, not out, just out of God's fatherhood, but out of recognition of his own sonship. And therefore, we, as fellow heirs, as sons and daughters and brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ, sons and daughters of God, we can approach God not only out of his fatherhood, his perfect fatherhood. Some of us haven't had good fathers or any fathers. But out of God's perfect fatherhood, we can approach them as sons and daughters of the relationship. We know him as intimate, but also powerful. Calling him Father while also hallowing his name signifies that, yes, the Creator, the Alpha Omega, the Creator of everything is also someone who we can trust and know with the very depths of our hearts as we would a perfect Father. Hallowed be your name. To hallow something comes from the same word for sanctify. It means to set apart, to make holy, to make different, to make special. But it's not just about recognizing that God is the God of all, all, all other gods, Psalm 95. But this also reflects our fervent desire of who that God is. Praising and praying that God's name be hallowed is indicative of our hopes and behaviors and the affection of the prayer. That indeed, God's name and only God's name be raised up and set apart in this world. The question is when we pray, what do we really want or who do we really want raised up or set apart in our life? Because sometimes it's not always simply the name of God. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This could be a whole year of preaching on its own about the kingdom and such, but I'm going to break it down very quickly. The kingdom, as I've talked about, is here, but not yet. 
Meaning there is an ultimate kingdom one day in the future which God will set everything aright. The ultimate future of God's righteousness and God's kingdom on earth. But it's not here yet. But it started when the tomb became empty. Therefore, we call it, as I've said before, an inaugurated eschatology. The kingdom, in a sense, is now, but also not yet. Is begun, but not fulfilled. Is started, but not concluded. And therefore, the kingdom, the people, the group of people, the group of people devoted to the reign of God, under God, is His kingdom citizens are bringing, as Jesus did, the future kingdom, as much as we can through God's power, into the present, that ultimately, through that, it might ultimately be fulfilled. Therefore, what this means is that while we are on today, and only today, it means not only a a revelation of what has happened in the past, but it means that we live in light of the future and ultimate kingdom. Therefore, everything we do isn't just to be good so we can go to heaven. Actually, I preach that the point of a Christian is not just to go to the heaven. The point of a Christian is to be like Christ and bring his kingdom evermore into the present through who we are and through what we do. So, with that said, when we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, it's not just saying, God, make everything right. It's praying that by our love of God, by our love and respect and and recognition of who God is, that we bring through us, through His power, the kingdom into fruition now. Give us this day our daily bread. There's a lot of debate about what bread means. Does it mean a metaphor for sufficiency? Does it mean um, ultimate sustenance? Does it mean the Word of God? Does it mean ultimately, I'm boring, I think it just means bread. But why do I say that? Because the prayer shifts from things about God to things about us. And the prayer talks about the ordinary needs of ordinary life, which is not always ordinary if you have not. I think Jesus is giving us permission to, in light, even of the greatness and sovereignty and power of Father God, to then realize that as Father, He is invested and intrinsically active in our everyday life. Therefore, we can pray for what we need. For bread. To forgive our debts. We have also forgiven our debtors. Switch ahead to the last two verses. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your Heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now wait a minute. It sounds like this is saying that unless you forgive others, God won't forgive you. Now, that can't be right. But it's actually kind of what it says. What it's saying is that as God has given you forgiveness and as you give others forgiveness, what links those two things? What links those two things? Jesus Christ himself and the cross for which he died. Therefore, if they are ultimately connected, it does mean that as God has forgiven you, so you forgive others. And inversely, it means as you don't forgive others, God does not forgive you. That's what it says. And he goes on to repeat it later on in chapter 7 with the golden rule. 
Put simply in the positive, what this means is not so much a, a commentary on theology, theology of moral effort, but what this means is simply this. Forgiven people forgive. And reconciled kingdom citizens reconcile with others. This is not something which we practice the eye of the eye and the tooth for the tooth as he talked about last chapter as was common. It's not about getting even. It's about reconciliation through relationship first with God and therefore with each other. Forgiven people forgive. And finally, lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. It's important to recognize that this does not mean that there will be no temptations but it means that there will be protection and perseverance with God, by God, and for God when they come. This is very indicative of 1 Corinthians 10. And Paul says, when, overta- when temptations come upon you, there will be a way of escape. It also means that this is a weak petition. Which also means then, we are intrinsically involved in yearning and fighting and praying for each other's holiness through temptation. Through life. So that was quick. But what does this all mean? This is the point. If you've tuned out, fallen asleep, tune in back in now. This is the point. The reason Jesus is saying the Lord's Prayer here, in conjunction with talking about praying, and talking about giving, and talking about the treatment of others, is simple. He says that the Lord's Prayer reorders our very prayers and the reason and motivation behind them. Why do you pray? To whom do you pray? What do you pray about? Because it reorders our prayers, it reorders our motivations. Why are we praying for this person? Why are we praying here? Why aren't we praying to God directly? Why and how are we doing it? And likewise, then, it reorders our desires. This is actually language from Augustine about reordering our desires, our loves, the question is, what do people love? And who do people love? Do they love people more than God? Do they love their approval more than God? Do they love themselves more that they won't forgive or give others when they need it? The Lord's Prayer, by its very nature, reorders everything about our prayer life, therefore our motivations and desires, by praising God, recognizing who He is, what He has done, and then having us pray for not only ourselves, but for the rest of us in the faith community. If we pray for God, in God, through God, by God, and pray for others, for all else, our order is correct. The question this sermon leaves us with is the why question. Why do you give? Why do you pray? And actually leads us to the question why are you a Christian? Why are you here? Why do you act how you do? Why do you worship how you do? It's not an indictment, but it's a question of making sure that our desires, our motivations, and our prayers are in the right order. Not for the sake of others, but for the sake of God. Not for the sake of ourselves, but for the sake of others. This may seem obvious, Getting him wrong has consequences. 
praise God that He is powerful enough to even reorder our very hearts and minds and souls. I invite you to reflect on that as I want to end today by once again reciting the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one.